Father, your word is filled with things we need. Sometimes, Father, it's got just the right word for us as we have a season of doubt or concern. Perhaps we're troubled by something and you give us a word of calm and patient understanding. Or perhaps, Father, we're beset by sin and there's a word of correction we needed to hear. Other times, Father, your word is instructional. It moves us forward in our understanding in some way and we we see that growth and we are thankful for it. And Father, sometimes your word mystifies us. It's not because your word is unclear. It's not because you intend to confuse us, Father. It's what happens when finite people encounter an infinite God. It's what happens when our our understanding is limited by our maturity or by our diligence. And sometimes, Father, it's because the timing is not right for us to understand something. You are waiting because you know there's a better moment later. And Father, I I know these things, I sense these things, for in my own study I encounter all of those experiences. And this morning, Father, as we open up chapter 4, the events are simple, but the meaning may be beyond us, and the profound nature of what you're teaching may escape us for a while. But I do pray, Father, that as only you can do in your word, even if we aren't clear on all the details, we will have what you need us to have. And Father, I pray that we be satisfied in that today, whatever that is. Give us what we need, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as we go into chapter 4 this morning, we're now ready to move into the next major section of this book. Let's revisit just for a moment where we've been, and then I'll give you a heads up on where we're going. We just finished the first section of the book of Ezekiel. That section runs chapters 1 through 3. And in those chapters, in a nutshell, what we learned was Ezekiel's calling to be a prophet, how he came into the line of work that he has. And the job description we learned from last week, it's remarkably simple, but it is a bit challenging. Ezekiel was called to be a watchman for Israel. He was to speak to the people of God as God directed him to do so, speaking only when God directs him to speak. And he wasn't to be concerned at all with how the people responded to what he said. They might listen, they might not listen, doesn't matter. He was to be faithful to the job of speaking. Like a watchman standing on the wall of a city just yelling down to everybody, hey, the bad guys are coming. At that point, you're not responsible for what follows. We also learned, though, last week that in the mission that God has given him as a prophet to Israel, it's going to exact a considerable toll on this guy over the course of the years that he has this mission. Because he's being called by God to forego a normal life among the people of Israel as he serves God in this dramatic fashion. He has to live, for example, he has to live sequestered in his home. He's not allowed to leave his home, for the most part. And we learned last week, God has made this man mute so that he could only speak in circumstances when the Lord has specifically directed him to do so. So that's the price this man is paying as he has to serve God. He isn't free to just live his normal life, whatever normal is in this case, given that he and his people are all in captivity at this point in Babylon. Nevertheless, it's even worse for him. Now that brings us to the first prophecy that Ezekiel has to deliver to the people of God. So far we've just been working our way up to that. But now in chapters 4 through 24, which is a long section... The Lord begins a series of warnings to the people of Israel. These are warnings of a coming destruction to principally their beloved city, Jerusalem. Those warnings start in chapter 4. The first of those warnings goes from 4 to 7. So that's really where we are now. The next section is chapter 4 to chapter 7. It's the first warning that God has Ezekiel speak. Today we're just going to study the very first part of that section, chapter 4. But as you're going to see with me this morning... 
This warning begins in a very curious fashion. Because God does not ask Ezekiel to speak to Israel. Remember, if God doesn't ask him to speak, he can't speak at all, right? That means Ezekiel is going to remain completely silent during the first part of this initial prophecy. So that begs this huge question, right? If he can't speak, then how does he issue the first warning that he's called to issue to Israel? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, you, son of man, get yourself a brick, place it before you, and inscribe a city on it, Jerusalem. Then, lay siege against it. Build a siege wall, raise up a ramp, pitch camps, and place battering rams against it all around. Then... Get yourself an iron plate and set up as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it so that it is under siege and besiege it. This is a sign to the house of Israel. Now as for you, lie down on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. For you shall bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on it. For I have assigned you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity, 390 days. Thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. Then you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and prophesy against it. Now, behold, I will put ropes on you so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you've completed the days of your siege. (laughs) Let's stop there for a second, because that's enough for now, right? I mean, you're a little intrigued here by what God's asking of this man? Confused? Well, if that's true, it's not surprising, because what we've just done in the course of this text is we have just dropped into a game of charades. Now, before the days of the Internet... And before the days of video games, everyone sits around on a couch now and just watches the TV in one way or another. Before that, charades used to be a really common party game. I'm curious, how many of you have ever played charades? Okay, actually, that's more than I expected. I didn't know if that had all gone by the wayside. Pretty much everything now, if it doesn't have a button on each side, you don't know what to do with it. So for anyone who may not be aware of here's how the game would typically work. One person draws a slip of paper from a bowl with a word or a phrase on it, you know, and then that one person, without speaking, acts out the meaning of what they find on that piece of paper for the room, and everyone else in the room is trying to guess what they have on that piece of paper. Now that's essentially what God just asked Ezekiel to do in public before the nation of Israel sitting in exile. He's going to act out a charade, a prophecy before Israel. But this is no game, for the events that he depicts here are very serious indeed. They foretell great destruction coming for Israel, to the city of Jerusalem specifically, because of their sin under the old covenant that they have with the Lord. Now, if you know the game of charades, you know that to succeed in that game, there's at least a couple of things you have to understand. First, you have to understand the symbols that people will use to communicate to you in the course of the game. For example, in the game, you can hold up a number of fingers to indicate how many words are in the phrase or how many syllables are in the word. That has to be something you understand or you won't follow the game very well. Also, you can, you can do this, which is a way of saying that the word I'm about to pantomime sounds like the real word I'm trying to get you to guess. That's the first thing you have to know. The second thing you have to know to be successful at charades is you have to know a little bit of culture and history. Because that's often where the clues come from. Like if someone is miming the phrase, a hard day's night, 
but you're not familiar with 1960s pop music, you're not going to probably guess the answer very easily. Or if someone is acting out the word water, and then they act out the word gate, you're probably not going to put the two together unless you're familiar with American politics, right? So there's a certain amount of cultural knowledge that has to be in place. So knowing that about charades, if we're going to understand Ezekiel's charade, we need to understand a few things about the symbols he's using, and we have to understand a little bit about Jewish history. And to help you follow all this, uh, I've actually got a handout that's available online. You can download it from the website. But let's start with the the first part of the charade that the Lord is asking Ezekiel here to perform. In verse 1, the Lord asks Ezekiel, find a brick and inscribe Jerusalem on it. Now in Babylon, remember they're in Babylon right now, that's uh, present day Iraq. Israel has been moved there because the, the city was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, a few years earlier. And they're prisoners. They were the spoils of war. But in Babylon, bricks were made of clay mud and straw. They were not baked. They were just set out in the sun to dry. And they could vary in size. Some of them could be quite large. In fact, the Hebrew word here for brick could also be translated tablet. And that's the idea here. Historically, we're looking at something that was probably about two feet by one foot. So don't think like the little bricks that you build your walls out of today. Think of something a little bigger. Maybe even shaped something like a tombstone set up in the ground. And on it... We're told that he is to inscribe a depiction of the city of Jerusalem. Notice in verse 1, he is to inscribe a city on it. He does not ask him to inscribe the name of the city. He asks him to inscribe the city. So you need to imagine that Ezekiel probably carved into the tablet an outline of the city walls. Maybe he marked out where the pools were. Maybe he marked out where the temple was. But whatever he did, it would have been immediately obvious to anyone from that city that, oh, that's a picture of Jerusalem. That's the whole point. It needs to be understandable. Then he commands him in verse 2, and this is really fun to imagine because you're talking about a grown man now. He wants him to play toy soldier. He says, I want you to set up a little battle scene around this thing, complete with an enemy camp, with little siege ramps, with battering rams. Get out your G.I. Joes and your little toy soldiers, and let's have a little game of siege the brick as if you're a little child playing in the dirt. At this point, let's stop and understand what we're talking about, what this charade means. The first part is fairly easy to understand because we know what the brick means. The brick is a picture of the city, and there's a siege taking place. Well, we know this is a siege of Jerusalem. Now, you remember at this time, Ezekiel and his brethren are sitting in captivity in Babylon. They had already seen this event, or one like it. They had already seen King Nebuchadnezzar come to where they were living in Jerusalem and siege the city and take it captive. So they already know what a siege looks like around Jerusalem. But history records that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem a total of three times, not just once. The first of those happened in 605 B.C. The city of Jerusalem was taken, and many of the citizens were hauled back to Babylon. Among them was the prophet Daniel. And then the Babylonians put a new king in charge of the people who were left over in Jerusalem, a king that was Jewish, but one they installed who would be friendly to Nebuchadnezzar. That king pledged loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, but soon he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So the Babylonians came back a second time. They defeated the city a second time in 597 BC. And in that second attack, more of the city was taken captive and sent back to Babylon. And in that second wave of exiles, Ezekiel was taken. So we are sitting now at the point after two of those three attacks is history. But there's one still yet to come. And in 586 B.C., after a second revolt 
by another king, the Babylonians decide, we've had it up to here with Jewish revolts in Jerusalem. So we're going to go back a third time, and we're going to finish this business. They utterly destroyed the city, reduced the walls to rubble, reduced the temple to its foundation, took everyone else, and brought them all back to Babylon. Now, that third siege is still future at the point of the events that we're looking at here in chapter 4. So, at this point in their captivity, the people of Israel are living under a false expectation. They are living with this expectation that sooner or later they're going to be sent back to their city. You know, this is a temporary setback. We've been captive. The city has been taken, but it's still there. As long as the walls are there, as long as the temple is there, they have hope to go back. But Ezekiel now, through the word that the Lord is giving him, is to communicate to the people of Israel, you have no cause for that hope. In fact, much, much worse is yet to come for you. Not only is the city going to eventually be destroyed here shortly, but there'll be even greater calamity for you after that. And the details of that greater calamity are now what you see in the second half of this little charade that we've already read about. Verse 4, the Lord commands Ezekiel, after he's set up the little siege, the little toy soldier thing, now he says, I want you, Ezekiel, to lie on your side on the ground near this display that you've created. And for 390 days, I want you to take up a position lying on the left side of your body, presumably with his face north, his feet south. Uh, I say that because he's representing the northern kingdom of Israel, we're told. And then he says, after you've done that for 390 days, which, by the way, is a year and a month, after that, you're going to get up and start lying on the other side of your body. And for 40 days, you're going to lie on your right side. That greater time reflects the fact that the northern kingdom had a greater degree of sin in what they did during their time on the earth. So as he's laying there, left side first, right side later, then he's going to hold an iron plate up between himself and this little display that he built. Now we're back to what we said a minute ago. We need to understand what these symbols mean, and we're going to have to understand a little history to put them all together. First thing I want to tell you is, and this will help you if you're worried a little bit about Ezekiel at this point, he did not lay on the ground 24-7. I mean, even if you want to give consideration to the possibility God would permit that or enable that, it's not required here. Because later in this chapter, you're going to see Ezekiel's required to get up at times and make food for himself and so on. So this is not God saying you're going to be in a mobile statue laying on the ground. That's not reasonable anyway. He wouldn't be able to eat. What he likely then had to do is he had to spend a good part of every day in that position. Think of it as his job. This is what he does every day. And he does it for the number of days consecutively that God has ordered him to do. Why is he doing this? Well, let's look at a couple of clues in the text. First of all, the Lord tells him you're going to be, quote, bearing the iniquity of the houses of Israel and Judah, respectively. To bear something means to carry it. It means to be burdened with it. So Ezekiel represents something here. He's not himself. You know, just like the brick was not actually Israel, it was simply a symbol of Israel. Well, neither is Ezekiel actually himself in this little drama. He's an actor. He's playing a role. What part is he playing? Well, he represents, we're told here, the houses of Israel. That means in each position he lays, north and then south, he is depicting himself as if he were the people of Israel from the north or the people of Israel from the south. In that position, he is bearing the consequences of their sins under the old covenant. So that would mean that while he's on the ground laying there, he is depicting what is to happen 
to the nation of Israel because of their sins. They will bear the consequences of their sins. And then you have the little iron plate. Now, the iron plate he's speaking of here was probably the kind that was used traditionally to bake bread for the offering in the temple. They had an iron plate they baked bread on in the temple. He tells them, I want you to hold this plate up and always keep it between you and the city. Now, remember, who is Ezekiel depicting in this little charade? He's depicting Israel. He's depicting the houses of Israel. So there will be a steel or iron plate separating them from their city, preventing them from having access to their city. It emphasizes the firmness of that judgment that Israel will not be able to penetrate this barrier that God will set up to prevent them from going back to their city. You also notice his arm is bare, it says during this time. Ezekiel's arm is bared. That's a cultural thing. Traditionally, in that day, if you bared any body part, it was an act of hostility. It was an act of anger. You know, men would tear their clothes if they were terribly distressed over something. Uh, It was considered improper to show any body part. Legs, arms, or whatever. That's why they had the robes that covered their whole body. So it's a sign of the hostility that God would be pouring out on Israel during this time. His hostility. God's anger for their sin. All of this comes together in a very simple message to Israel. What's about to happen to your city and to you is the result of sin against me, and I am now responding to your sin in judgment. It's not coincidence. It's not bad luck. It's not just the vagaries of geopolitical forces doing what they will, and you're caught up in it. No, 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 no. When you see what's about to happen, I'm telling you now, I'm doing it to you. I'm doing it to you because it's the just thing to do in light of your violation of our covenant. And you need to understand it or you won't get the message. So the second part of the trade explains there will be long-term consequences for your sins under the old covenant. And that long-term consequence is the nation of Israel will be barred, as if through iron, from returning and enjoying their city and their temple for a total of how long? Well, 390 plus 40 is 430 years. For 430 years, Israel will be unable to enjoy what they have previously enjoyed. Now, I want you to understand this judgment properly. And to understand it properly, you have to understand how it played out in history. We have to understand that access to the city of Jerusalem and to the temple that God put there lies at the center of all of God's prophecies concerning the nation of Israel. In the Bible, the Lord promises that his people, Israel, will have a glorious future in the land he promised to them, centered on a holy city called Jerusalem, with a temple operating where the glory of God will fill that temple. God will fulfill that promise to Israel in the future. It has not yet been fulfilled. It will one day be fulfilled. And we see it fulfilled in a period of history we call the Millennial Kingdom, this thousand years in which Christ will return and reign on the earth that the Bible promises. That's still to happen. But in the meantime, the Lord also granted His people Israel a foretaste of that blessing through the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant said to the people of Israel, as long as you keep the terms of this covenant, you will get to live in this land. You'll live in peace. You'll have a temple. I'll dwell with you in the glory of the temple. It's not the ultimate fulfillment of what I promised. It's a preview of coming attractions, but you can have it if you will keep the Old Covenant. But Israel rejected that. They did not keep the covenant. They violated the law. And the law itself says, if you do not keep this law, here is what will happen. There are consequences. And they're spelled out in the law. Chief among them is that Israel forfeits access to the land, to the city, to their temple. 
Here you see as a consequence for their sin, the Lord saying, you're going to lose your city, you're going to lose your temple, and in this case, it's for 430 years. There were times in the ensuing 430 years, there were times when Israel would have a temporary ability to re-enter the city and to even have a temple for a time. You see that during the times after Nehemiah. But even then, if you go back and look at the history carefully, the people were still restricted. They still had the authority of a Gentile ruler dictating where they could go and what they could do. Before long, they would find themselves pushed out of their land again, or the temple defiled, or the sacrifices halted. This happened time and time again, even after Nehemiah. That situation went on exactly like the Lord said it would for 430 years. But at the end of that time... The judgment would cease, according to what Ezekiel has depicted. And sure enough, if you go 430 years from this point in history, this moment in chapter 4, you find yourself at the year 156 B.C., which is the year that the Maccabean kingdom of Israel was established. In 156 B.C., one Jewish family called the Maccabees, they miraculously overthrew the remnants of the Greek empire that were controlling the land in that day. And for almost a hundred years, Israel had complete, unfettered control of their land, their city, and their temple. Jews still celebrate the miraculousness of that day with a feast that they call Hanukkah. That moment is significant because it is a direct reversal of their circumstances of the past 430 years, and it's unlike anything that had happened in the meantime, exactly as Ezekiel's prophecy would say would happen. So he depicts both Jewish kingdoms laying down, as it were, that is, defeated and prevented from reconquering their city and temple. And he says it's going to last that way for 430 years. And at the end of that 430 years, I will allow you again to stand up, as it were, and to take control of your city. But even then, only for a time. So parts one and two of this charade are pretty easy to understand when you look through the history of Israel and when you understand the symbols. But there are still two more parts to this prophecy. They're also told in mime, in charade. The third of those four finishes this chapter. So we're going to do one more today, and then next week we'll do the next one in chapter 5. But look where he ends, chapter 4 today, in the third part of this four-part conversation. He says in verse 9, But as for you, Ezekiel, take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, and put them in one vessel... And make them into bread for yourself. You shall eat it according to the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days. Your food which you eat shall be 20 shekels a day by weight. You shall eat it from time to time. The water you drink will be the sixth part of a hin by measure. You shall drink it from time to time. All right, well, let's understand this part of the charade. Now he's telling him, here's what you're going to eat and drink while you're lying on your side. Notice this is only for the time when he's lying in the 390-day position, not the 40-day position. Okay, And he should take, it says here, six grains together, mill them into a flour, and then make bread from these six grains. Now this is a very unusual mixture of grains. Today you're going to find companies who are selling bread in the supermarket that's based on this same mixture of grains. And what do you think they call it? Ezekiel bread. This is a good example of how biblically illiterate the world is and how wrong we get things because we're biblically illiterate. They will tell you that this special concoction was provided by God because it's a supernatural combination of grain that is intended for the very best nutrition possible, right? And we see that on the label and we're like, well, it's in the Bible. It must be right. 
It's ironic because the context of Ezekiel 4 makes clear that God had a very different purpose. In fact, he literally had the opposite message from what you see written on the package. This strange mixture of grain does not represent health. It symbolizes Israel's poverty and their desperation during the coming siege. Notice Ezekiel is told he can only eat the equivalent of 20 shekels by weight of this bread. Now, you don't know what a shekel weighs, of course, but I did the math for you. The shekel weighs about the equivalent of eight to nine slices of bread. This is your daily provision. You can eat eight to nine slices of bread a day. That's what he's being told. That's about 720 calories a day. That, friends, is a starvation diet. He would have lost a lot of weight over the close to 14 months that he would have spent in this process. Moreover, he can only drink a sixth of a hen of water. Here again, I have to do the the math for you. That's about a quart of water a day. In a hot desert climate like Babylon, laying out all day, that's scarcely enough water to survive. So obviously he did survive, but what we're trying to understand here is it's not a comfortable existence. And then there's a second part to the third sign. I'm going to go a little further in the text, verse 12. When it comes to the little cake he's going to make, the little bread, look what he has to do. Verse 12, you shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Then the Lord said, thus will the sons of Israel eat their bread, unclean among the nations where I will banish them. But I said, "Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never been defiled. For from my youth until now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has any unclean meat ever entered my mouth. And then he said to me, well, see, I will give you cow's dung in place of human dung over which you will prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I'm going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem and they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety. They will drink water by measure and in horror because bread and water will be scarce and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. So what God asks Ezekiel to do is to make their, this bread that he's told them to make in a very specific way, in a very odd way, and a very offensive way. He has to bake the bread like you would bake a barley cake, which would mean in their day over an open fire. And he says, you need to do this publicly. I want you out in the front of people when you make this bread every day that you're going to eat. And, of course, the most important part, or at least the most notable part, is he says you're going to cook this over human excrement which will be the fuel for your fire. Here again, all of what God is asking him to do here is reflective of what's going to exist inside the walls of the city of Jerusalem during the time that that city will eventually be sieged. In the day that that siege took place, remember when we say a siege, by the way, we mean there's an army outside the walls, they want to come in, you don't want them to come in, and in the stalemate that ensues, they don't let anything in or out. They just wait. They starve you out. And inside a walled city, there's some food, yes, there's animals, yes, there's stuff initially, but there's also a lot of hungry people. And so over time, things get desperate. In the history books we have of what took place during Nebuchadnezzar's third siege, we know that people began to burn everything they could for fuel, and eventually they run out of everything that's burnable. Even today, they still use camel dung quite often for uh, fuel. And at this point, as he's hearing the depiction, as Ezekiel's hearing what he's got to do, He's had about all he can take. And he responds in verse 14, Ah, Lord God. Now, in the Hebrew, it really is a little different. It has a little different connotation. For us, it seems a bit like, Oh, ah, Lord God. No, it's like, Lord, no, wait, come on. (laughs) 
And you have to think about how desperate he must have been knowing what he's gone through, right? Because this is the guy that saw the cherubim, the throne, the glory of God. He's gone through all of that. You'd think that might put him in a reverential state of mind. And then on top of that, he's heard so far all these things he's got to do, lying on his side for a year. Not a peep. You know, so far he's hanging with God pretty well. We get to this point, and he's okay, I've had it. That's it. I'm not going to cook on my own poop. I'm sorry. And he gives the Lord a reason. He tells him, he says, I've done all that was needed in my life to keep the law. Now, he's not claiming perfection. I don't think that's his point. His point is, I have respected your commands concerning what the ceremonial laws of the covenant require. I've worked hard to do the right things. And he's saying at this point, I don't feel comfortable with this. Now, let's be clear. There's no law in the laws God gave Israel that says you can't cook with human poop. There's no law that says that. So he's not specifically objecting because the Lord's asking him to do something wrong. The Lord's not asking him to do something that is wrong according to the law. What he's saying is, I feel as if I will be defiled by this request. This exceeds my comfort level. My conscience is now a concern at this point. And that's the point. The Lord has said something that his conscience won't bear, so he asks the Lord for relief. And the Lord could have overruled him. Theoretically, the Lord could have said, I'm sorry you feel that way, but that's my rule. But God graciously substitutes cow dung, which is not that much better, but better enough for Ezekiel's situation. And he does so as a matter of grace, because he's not interested in wounding the prophet's conscience. He's just interested in getting a message across, and cow dung does it pretty well. You can see the point in all these things in verses 16 and 17, when God himself explains the message of the charade. He says, I want you, Ezekiel, to illustrate the poverty that Israel is going to experience during this coming siege. People are going to experience a famine, he says. I'm going to bring a famine to Jerusalem. But it's a famine created by the siege itself. They're going to eat bread by weight. They're going to drink water by measure. And all of that just means it's going to be very closely rationed. And they're going to become anxious trying to find food. They're going to become horrified at the prospect of running out of water inside a walled city. He says the world will be appalled at what people are reduced to doing for survival inside this city during the siege. The siege, we know from history, lasted 18 months. That's a long time for people to live inside a very small, walled space. And true to God's word, what we know from history that's been written of that moment, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were reduced to inhumane measures for survival. The Babylonians literally starved them to the point of cannibalism. Here's what Jeremiah, who's a contemporary of Ezekiel, here's what he said would happen in the city. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 19, the Lord speaking says, Because they've forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah have ever known, and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal, to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it enter into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth, or the Valley of Enhimon, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will also make this city, speaking of Jerusalem, a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege. And in distress, 
with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. That passage referred earlier to the sins that led to this great disaster. They included Israel literally taking children and bring that child to a place of Baal worship, an evil pagan god that really is a picture of Satan. And in the way Israel had fallen into that kind of pagan worship, they took children to temples dedicated to that God, and they took a child of that age, and they slaughtered the child as a child sacrifice. So if you're a little disturbed by what God is bringing about in Israel, you need to understand what preceded it, what God is dealing with in the hearts of his people. So Ezekiel's strange diet and cooking practices are pictures of a coming desperation for the nation of Israel because of their sin. There is still one more part of this, which we'll see next week in chapter 5, but already you should be getting a pretty good appreciation for the cost Not only of Israel for their sin, but consider the cost he's bearing now to be a prophet. Look at the the physical discomfort, the public humiliation, the deprivation that God is going to ask of this man just for the sake of depicting these things to another group of people. But even beyond all of that, he's not got anything close to a normal life anymore. It's not like he just has this little thing he has to do on the side. He literally is ceasing from normal life. He's going to spend most of every day for the next 14 months just laying around and just getting up only when he wants to eat or drink. Right about now you're starting to wonder, is my teenager a prophet? (laughs) But joking aside, Ezekiel's sacrifice is not easy. It had to have included persecution. I mean, imagine laying around in front of people like this all this time. He would have been mocked. And then there's the self-doubt. Can you imagine what he thought every morning? He's getting up on like day 190 and he's thinking... Uh, I'm not sure. Am I really supposed to do this? What's the point again? Do you think he ever wavered in completing that task? If he did in his heart, he did not do it in his actions, which is really the testimony that we have to remember. Ezekiel's faithfulness is reminiscent, I think, of Noah's in a way. Noah had about an equally long task, difficult in a far different way, but still difficult. It came with mocking It was senseless to the people around him. Why do you need a big boat? We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no water around us. Everything in Ezekiel's life stopped so that he could be 100% dedicated to serving God in a remarkable task that must have made little sense to most people, maybe even to himself. And I told you last week that being a disciple of the Lord brings a cost, right? You have to be prepared to set aside things in your life, things you prefer, so that you can do whatever the Lord's asking you to do and sacrifice whatever He desires from us And if the challenge of doing that was daunting to you, if the thought of making major sacrifices to serve the Lord sets you back a little bit, then look at what you see happening to Ezekiel. Jesus told us his yoke is easy, it's light. The burdens that he asks us to bear are not difficult. And the reason he can say that is not because the work isn't hard, it's that he does all the heavy lifting. And you see that here. Look back in verse 8. The Lord tells Ezekiel, I'm going to help you take on this very difficult task Notice the language he says there, I'm going to bind you with ropes. Now, if you want to try this, go home and lay on your side in the way he's doing it. Literally laying on one arm, maybe prop yourself up a little bit, but just lay that way. See how long you can do it before you have to move. Before you just, your arm's asleep, your hip hurts. The point is, he's going to do this for 430 straight days. That's torture. But while he's on the ground in that awkward position, the Lord says, don't worry, I'm going to hold you there as if by ropes. That's the indication here. It's not literally that he's roped up. It's as if by ropes, I'm holding you there. So Ezekiel doesn't even have to do the hardest part of what he's being asked to do because the Lord's going to make that part of the burden easy for him, relatively speaking. But he still had to show up for work every morning. There's still going to be difficult times. I'm not saying the whole thing was a cakewalk. What I'm saying is, like you've heard me say here quite often before, 
Serving Christ is less about your ability, it's more about your availability. Showing up for work is the task. Watch how God uses that to work in you for some blessing. Let Him give you the strength to do what He asks you to do. It's not going to make everything perfect, it's going to make it possible. And there's a big difference between those two. But if you're worried, like Ezekiel was, that the Lord might ask too much of you somewhere along the line, if you're worried about that moment, well, take note of what the Lord did in this case. When Ezekiel could not stomach the Lord's command to do what he asked, he just graciously gave him something else that would work just as well. He gave him an alternative. He granted his request because, I believe, Ezekiel spoke out of conviction, not out of complaint. And that's another difference. The Lord's certainly going to challenge us sometimes. Take it from me, from my personal experience, He will move you out of a comfort zone when that comfort zone is standing between you and spiritual maturity. So it's not about you being comfortable But the scripture also says he's not going to give you more than you can handle, as he sees here with Ezekiel. He may grant you a request for something a little easier in terms of how he's asking you to serve, but don't expect him to honor that request if it comes out of selfishness or laziness. If it comes out of conviction, the Lord's not here to wound your conscience. And remember, it's always going to require a sacrifice one way or the other. So let's consider the last point for the morning. What I hope is the most obvious and perhaps the most critical question you would ask as you read a chapter like this. Why did God employ charades? Later in chapter 5, when we get there, you're going to see when the Lord finally tells Ezekiel, okay, now you can speak. What he's going to say is more or less exactly what we just saw depicted in the charade. Which begs the question, why didn't you just cut to the chase? Why the drama in between? Moreover, you and I know from our prior study that the Word of God is the most powerful force in the universe. Scripture says that the world itself is literally held together by the power of God's Word. It's not like it just exists on its own. If God's Word ever stopped holding it together, it would fall apart. And the Bible says that when everything else we see is gone, passed away, the Word of God will still exist. And the Word of Prophecy is said to be so sure that if necessary, rocks would cry out to fulfill it if men don't. So you know the Word of God is sufficient. God doesn't need a drama to get His point across. But the Lord has been speaking to Israel. For centuries the Lord has been speaking to Israel. And He's been explaining through the prophets that there would be consequences that would follow if Israel failed to keep up their part of the Old Covenant. And time doesn't permit me to read it, but Isaiah 13, if you go back there, you'll see Isaiah, who lived centuries before Ezekiel was telling them exactly what would happen. He names it as Babylon. He says, this is what they're going to do to you. It's not news. They knew it was coming. And they were told they needed to repent to avoid it. And they didn't. So now the time has come for the Lord to make an example of Israel. If Israel would not fulfill their purpose to be an example to the world through their obedience, then the Lord says, I'll make you an example through disobedience. And he orders Ezekiel to go through this long, torturous display to get their attention... And he does it so that he can tell them, just as I'm getting your attention through Ezekiel's drama, well, there's going to come a day soon when I'm going to get the world's attention through your drama. Because you would not listen to my word. As God's people, friends, we have to understand that we too have a mission to do the same thing. We have a mission in the world to speak the truth concerning Christ. That's our message. The message of the gospel. And we're to carry that message to the world, as Israel was supposed to carry their message. But that message of words is going to be far more powerful if it's backed up by a message of action, of what we do. Just as God's word to this nation was going to be a lot more powerful, having come on the heels of a drama that depicted it. 
And so we have to concern ourselves with how we live. If you and I live out our faith in the right way, you may gain opportunity for people to actually hear the word that you want to speak to them later. Let's set our goal for that, okay? Let's set our goal, not just to be a witness in what we know and say, but in how we live, knowing that that life has to be one that is sacrificially devoted to what call He has given us. Lip service goes so far. Token efforts go only so far. Living for Christ now so that we can receive a good report in our day to come, that will require sacrifice. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the reminder in Your Word this morning that we have a call, Father, to obey and to serve. I pray, Lord, that You will show us where we can serve You in the way You've called. I pray, Father, that You would give us the strength when it's needed. I pray, Father, You would... Protect our conscience, should what we be asked to do, Father, be beyond our ability and our our tolerance. But, Father, work us out of our comfort zone so that we would serve you, so that the end for us in that service would be a profitable outcome, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.